Thanks to Harry's for supporting the Motley Fool's industry focus. Get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel. Go to harrys.com fool. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You are listening to the Financials Edition taped today on Monday, May 22nd, 2017. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me on Skype is Jordan Wathen, beloved Motley Fool contributor and expert in financial companies. How's it going, Jordan? Oh, it's going all right. How are you, Gabby? Pretty good. Are you happy to be a beloved contributor? I'm very happy to be a beloved contributor. I think that's better than my last introduction, which is something about being exotic, so... I'll yeah, take it. yeah, that's okay. I I, I think that ex- exotic can be good too, um, in certain contexts. <laughs> anyway, uh, listeners, just in case you didn't remember, um, this week is Insurance Day on Industry Focus Financials. So we're gonna start the front half of the show is gonna be um, just basics about an insurance company, what they are, how they make money, some stuff that you need to look out for when you're thinking about investing, and then the back half of the show is going to be user-submitted questions, or I suppose listener-submitted questions that we're going to answer. If you ever want your question answered on Industry Focus, just send us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. Okay, let's dive right into it, because this is going to be an action-packed show, and start with a super easy question, which is, what is an insurance company? Well, so the basic of an insurance company is that it exists to spread risk risk around among a bunch of different uh, customers. So one of the best explanations I ever heard was that you can think of insurance companies like banks that take deposits or your premiums and allow you to withdraw money only when you experience a large financial loss. So I think homeowners insurance is probably one type of insurance that's easiest to explain. Um, a home's the most expensive thing most people will ever own. And so most homeowners buy homeowners insurance to protect them from the financial risks that their home's destroyed by fire or wind or some other kind of disaster. And a policy like that costs maybe one or two percent of the home's value each year in premiums. Yeah, and it, it makes sense, right? Because the idea is that you have all these people who are not having a disaster at any given time helping to pay for the one or two people that are having a disaster. And then you just scale this up to a massive, massive scale and you have an insurance company. Right. So that's a good point because most homeowners insurance companies, ideally, they would have risks in, say, high-risk states like Florida and then balance it out with, you know, homeowners that own a home in Texas so that when a hurricane strikes Florida, God forbid that ever happened again, but, you know, it's going to. Um, they'll have the money coming in from Texas, and hopefully there's no natural disaster there, so they won't have any, you know, they'll have profits in one state to pay for the losses in another. Yeah, and this model carries over pretty much regardless of what you're talking about, right? So, like, car insurance or health insurance, those are the two that I think people are probably most familiar with. Um, but, yeah, so so insurance companies make money two different ways. One is kind of the way that you would expect, which is that they write all these policies, right? And people pay them premiums, but ideally not everyone is needs to like claim something from the insurance company every year. So the company just keeps the difference between the premiums paid in and the losses paid out. That's the first way they make money. Um, the second way they make money is actually really interesting. Jordan, do you want to take this one? Well, so yeah. So the second way they make money is when you pay your premiums, there's usually a time difference between when premiums are taken in and when losses are paid out. So in between that time, insurers sit on billions of dollars, actually probably trillions globally, where they can invest that money and keep the return they earn on it, right? So they call the money 
that they've taken in but not yet paid out. They call that the float. Uh, Warren Buffett's a big proponent of float. He has something like $100 billion in float at Berkshire Hathaway. And they make billions of dollars a year basically just sitting on their customers' money until it gets paid back out. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what I was going to say. Warren Buffett made his money by um, by having insurance companies and using the float to invest. So, like, Geico, for example, is a Berkshire Hathaway company. Um, so, you know what an insurance company is now, just in case you didn't before. Um, maybe you're, like, 15 and don't have to worry about those things. And in that case, good on you for listening to an investing podcast. And if you didn't know, well, now you know some more. It's good to learn something new every day. That's what my mother always says. You know how they make money. Um, so here are a couple things that you need to know about before you start trying to invest into invest in an insurance company. Um, the first thing is the combined ratio. Right. So a combined ratio, and this gets back to the first way they make money, which is by paying out less than they take in in premiums. And most insurance companies don't do that. We should throw that in there. Is that most insurance companies actually pay out more than they take in in premiums and make up the difference from uh, investing the float. But good insurance companies should show a combined ratio of over time of less than 100 or 100%, which basically basically the combined ratio says it takes the losses that you pay out and the expenses, the operating expenses of the business and divides it by the premiums. And ideally, that would be less than 100%. Yeah. And the most important thing is to make sure that you look at the combined ratio over time. Because if a company has a really great quarter, that's awesome. But like if their combined ratio has been 120% for like the last 10 years. A, they're probably not in business. But <laughs> B, that's that's a sign that you should worry about that company because their underwriting practices aren't strong and they're not doing a very good job of managing their risk. Right. So over multi-year periods, a good way to see if they're doing well or not is if they consistently report what's called uh, favorable prior year developments. And this is basically insurance speak for uh, our losses or our loss assumptions proved to be more conservative than they actually were. So we lost less than we thought we would on these policies. Uh, Safety Insurance Group, it's a publicly traded company. Uh, they're a company that's done really well over time of actually being very conservative in their assumptions. And historically, they generally generate these favorable prior year developments over time. Yeah, I think, are they the ones that are up in New England and they had that one really bad year because of that snowstorm? Oh, yeah. They had a horrible year in 2015. It was like a record loss year. Um, I think something like nine feet of snow fell on Massachusetts or Boston, you know, just Boston area generally, which is where they underwrite a lot of uh, car and homeowners insurance policies. And the losses were tremendous. But of course, now they're getting the benefit of that because they're being able to charge higher rates. Yeah. And if you look at their combined ratio over time, like Jordan said, um, it was really good. And it's not unusual for an insurance company to have like one really bad year here or there, especially if they're like in a if they insure a non-diverse geographic area so if they're just in one space um but you know you know just just try and keep all that stuff in mind as you're like wading through these documents um go ahead it sounds like you're about to say something oh well i was gonna say yeah so also another thing that i like to look at is the quality of the investment portfolio yeah so most companies that underwrite insurance will invest in short-term bonds or, you know, bonds generally safer investments like that. And something that I look for personally is they always show an average credit rating. I like to see that an insurance company take risks writing insurance and not so many risks in its investment portfolio. I mean, you can do one or the other, right? But you probably shouldn't do both. You shouldn't be taking obscene <laughs> risk in your investment portfolio and taking massive risks in your insurance portfolio too. 
Yeah, no, that's definitely really good advice. Um, you should you should always look at what is going on in their investment portfolio, and insurance companies are required to kind of disclose what they have going on in there in their 10Ks and 10Qs. So um, that's a good way to just kind of figure out what's going on. Um, as always, make sure you go back to the primary source documents and look at things for yourself. Uh, so the last thing that you should look at, so we talked about com- combined ratio over time and looking at the investment portfolio, is you want to think about what kind of macro effects there might be on insurance. So, for example, health insurance. No one really knows, at least in the United States, what's going to happen with health insurance over the course of the next four to 10 years, really. Um, And so that's something that you should think about when you're looking to invest in a health insurer. Right. That's actually a really good example because uh, there's health insurance, which is, you know, kind of short term, you know, the here and now needs. And a business that hasn't done very well over time in insurance is long term care insurance, because basically the assumptions were that, you know, health or the cost of health care would only go up X percent a year for so long. And well, lo and behold, you know, nothing's risen as fast as, I guess, student expenses first and then health insurance second or health costs second. So. A lot of these companies underwrote these policies on the assumption that you know prices might grow at three percent a year, when in reality they grew at four percent or five percent a year, and they end up you know losing their shirts on something like that. Yeah, the other thing that a lot of these insurance companies are facing now is people who got long-term insurance, you know, like twenty or thirty years ago. People are living a lot longer than they used to, um, and it's you know it, it does affect their bottom line. So there's a lot of like kind of outside factors that might affect it. An example that we brought up. The other day, in um, on that Warren Buffett episode, and if you didn't hear it, you can either search through your history and look for Berkshire Hathaway, or email me and I'll send you the episode. Um, is that driverless cars are going to affect car insurance, right? Because the more people who are not driving, the fewer people who need actual car insurance. Plus, driverless cars should reduce, in theory, the number of accidents that people are going to get into. So that's just you know something to think about if you're going to invest in an auto insurer. No, definitely. I, I think auto insurance is actually really interesting because one of the benefits of driverless cars, if they happen, is that the insurance premiums you pay every month should theoretically go down. So that's one of the economic reasons why driverless cars would be a big deal if they happen. I mean, that may be years away, but you know, it is definitely an, a risk that you have to know about. Yeah, and so we mostly talked about like pretty well-known types of insurance, but there's also some kind of like more weird insurance, and the insurer that always comes to mind for me is Markel. Like they insure, they'll insure giant parties. They'll insure your thoroughbred racing horse. They'll insure restaurants. Like they just insure kind of like weird things that other people have a hard time figuring out how to do the underwriting for. Um, right. I, I was actually involved with a charity. They do a golf tournament and they they buy hole in one one insurance because if you hit a hole in one, you get I think it's like ten thousand dollars or a new car, something like that. But you know they don't have the money to pay that out, so they actually buy hole in one insurance just in case, you know, it happens. Yeah. So it's it's stuff like that or like reinsurers, which I think we've talked about before on the show. I think it was actually me and Jordan, because Jordan and I always do like, let's talk about weird financial companies. (laughs) I don't know why. Um, But reinsurers are basically insurance companies for insurance companies. So insurance companies take out a policy with reinsurers because they're worried that if a huge natural disaster happens, they won't be able to pay out completely. So they have these reinsurers to come and help disperse the costs. Um, right. Yeah. It basically turns like most, most insurance com- or a lot of insurance companies, I shouldn't say most, you know, it just depends. But 
they buy reinsurance so that basically they end up just being marketing companies, right? They're out there just selling policies and passing on the risk to someone else. Yeah. Um, so like there are different types of insurance companies um, that you can look into and like maybe they won't be as affected by innovation as other companies are that that are right now are as affected by like the political landscape as other companies. Um, but yeah, I think that that pretty much sums up like the the bare bones basic like you know how to go out and at least approach the idea of investing in an insurance company. So with that, I'd like to thank Harry's Razors for supporting our podcast. For decades, one big razor company has relentlessly increased prices and reaped immense profits at the expense of its customers. So Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were fed up with getting ripped off, started Harry's to fix shaving. Harry's knew that there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own blade factory. By taking less profit and selling directly to you over the internet, Harry's offers their blades at half the price. Personally, I love Harry's. Um, (laughs) Listeners, this may come as a shock to you, but I'm actually a woman. And that means that if I choose to shave, I have a lot more surface area to shave than the average dude. I also have terribly sensitive skin. Um, and Harry's razors fall into this like middle of a Venn diagram, if you remember those from like elementary school, of giving you like this close, comfortable shave with a pretty, a pretty great price, if I do say so myself. Um, I know that the majority of our listeners are dudes, but ladies, don't be deterred by the male-focused marketing. You know, buy good razors like Harry's, regardless of who they're supposed to be made for. You know, the razor doesn't care. Your skin will thank you. And by buying razors from a great company like Harry's that has great products already, you can also feel good because Harry's makes sure to um, donate money every time that you buy a razor set, which is which is pretty awesome. Um, and Harry's is so confident that you will love their blades that they're giving you their trial set for free. Just cover the $3 shipping. Stop messing around and get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your free trial offer, $13 value for free, just cover shipping. To get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel, go to harrys.com fool right now. That's harrys.com fool. Your free trial set will include a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating grip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. Okay. So, thanks for sticking with us, and thank you again to Harry's for supporting our show. Um, on the back half of a show, on the back half of our show, we're going to answer listener questions about insurance, um, and we're going to start with uh, we're going to start with, like with most basic and work our way out to like most niche. Um, there's four questions in case you're curious. So, starting with, there are tons of insurance companies. Why? So there are a lot of insurance companies. Um, the first reason is that it's kind of the natural state of the insurance industry to have a lot of insurers. So if you think about it, insurance is all about spreading risk around. And that's not just among you know the insurance company's clients, but also among insurers, right? So the world would be a worse place if there were 10 insurance companies who owned the market in one state and you know underwrote car insurance policies or homeowners insurance or whatever, just in one state, rather than having a bunch of different companies that compete in a bunch of different states and in a bunch of different markets and spread the risks around that way. So I think the natural state is that this industry is always going to be very competitive. Um, The second reason, actually speaking of states, is that insurance companies are licensed in states. So um, when you think about starting an insurance company, it's much easier than starting another financial institution like a bank. Uh, The regulatory regime, I guess, isn't nearly as strict on insurance companies as it is, say, a bank. And for that reason, it's easier to start an insurance company than it is, you know, a bank. 
Yeah. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, the other, like you were saying with the, with their, it being good that there's a lot of insurers, like that ties into our conversation about reinsurance that we had at the front half of the show. Um, the other thing that you, you, you mentioned is that it's kind of easy to start an insurance company, but it's really hard to get rid of an insurance company. Right. Winding down an insurance company is hard just because the cost that one of the biggest benefits that you can have as an insurance company is scale is that you're bigger and you can support, you know, this massive customer service organization or whatever to go to go down to, you know, underwrite less insurance is really hard to do. It's, it's you know, it's bad for employee morale. It's bad for, you know, just the economics of the business that, you know, you have scale working against you as you get smaller. So it's it's hard to wind down an insurance company to say the least. Yeah, and there are regulations around how to do that and that just makes it that much harder. <laughs> you can't just like wake up one day and be like we're out of business. Sorry, everyone right, yeah. who has insurance. And, well, if with you us. insure someone's if you write insurance for 5 years, you can't just, you know, go shut down, right? Or you have to have someone take over the policy. It's it's just not easy to insurance is a, a long-run business. It's not easy to wind something like that down. You have the investment portfolio to wind down. It's just, it's just a mess. Yeah. Um, so that's why there's so many insurance companies. They're easy to start. They're hard to shut down. And it's good for everyone that there's more. Uh, yeah. Well, and the tax benefits can be tremendous, too. This is kind of a fun one. But a bunch of hedge funds are starting reinsurance companies in Bermuda now. And they write a small amount of insurance. Uh, so they can call themselves reinsurers. But really, they're just hedge funds that are trying to get tax advantages. So that's an interesting <laughs> angle, too. Yeah. That, I think that question actually... Um, the answer to it was a lot more complicated than I originally thought it would be. Um, so I'm really glad to the person who asked that question. I'm really glad for that person. Um, so what is the float typically invested in? So that depends, right? So the whole idea, most insurance companies really want to build an investment portfolio so that their assets, that duration of their assets matches that of their liabilities. So a car insurance company is writes short-term contracts. So it's going to primarily invest in short-term bonds. On the other hand, a company that writes life insurance or annuities, for example, it is going to invest in longer-term assets. And just to give you an example of that, let's use Progressive as a car insurance company. 80% of its uh, investment portfolio, its fixed income portfolio at least, is in short-term bonds that mature in less than five years. On the other hand, MetLife, which does you know life and annuity insurance, long long term insurance contracts, seventy percent of its portfolio is invested in bonds that mature in more than five years. So the whole idea is that, depending on how long it will take you to pay out your claims, generally speaking, the longer you can invest your capital. So the longer you can invest in longer term bonds or even stocks. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, I think a question that people will probably also have is. Um, you talked a lot about bonds. Um, what about stocks? So generally speaking, um, in the insurance, so Progressive, for example, it only has, I think it's only about 10% of its capital invested in stocks because stocks, you know, they gyrate so much more. And if they need to go sell stocks and say something like 2009 happens, you don't want to be in a scenario where you're selling stocks at a loss to repay, uh, to, to pay out claims, right? So generally speaking, these insurers try to keep into super safe investments 90% or more of their portfolio in bonds. Yep, that makes sense to me. I mean, that's what I would do if I were an insurer, I guess. Um, insurance companies typically are kind of like conservative animals because they have to be. Um, okay, so 
second to last question, what percentage of premiums paid make up the float for most insurance companies? So, okay, so ultimately premiums are the source of float, right? The question is really uh, how much in unearned premiums or premiums that are paid in advance of the contract. So if you pay on, let's say, March 30th, your insurance premium for April, May, and June. That's an unearned premium for the insurance company, right? They, that, that period hasn't come yet. So Progressive, for instance, it's unearned premiums on its balance sheet. When it last reported, was about $8 billion. Okay, so there's $8 billion of capital there. And then if you look a little bit further, you'll see their loss and loss adjustment reserves, which is how much they expect to lose, but they haven't paid out yet. And that was $11.6 billion. So for Progressive, the big generator float really isn't so much, I guess, premiums they've taken in in advance of the contract. It's really the amount of time it takes for um, them to pay out on losses, yeah. if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, that that makes a ton of sense. Thank you so much for, um, for answering that. Um, and listeners, we also have a really old article. I don't want to mislead you. It's from 2006. But uh, it helps also answer this question. Um, if you want it, just email me at industryfocus at fool.com. Um, the information in it is still relevant. It's just a very, very old. It's, it's over 10 years old at this point. Um, okay, so last question. This is definitely different from the other ones. Um, are Essence 68% net margins too, but too good to be true? And some background for listeners. Essence is a mortgage insurer. So that's like the private mortgage insurance that you need to buy if you um, put down less than 20% on a down payment for a house. Yeah. So this is like a billion dollar question, right? Uh, the answer is it's hard to say. I guess come back when home values are going uh, down rather than up. Um, mortgage insurance is just tough. So on a long timeline, it seems like all mortgage insurers eventually go to zero because the industry basically went extinct during the Great Depression. Uh, half of them blew up in the 1980s. M many of them blew up or almost blew up in 2008. So you have these like long generational cycles of just profits and then house values go down and they, they lose a fortune because they, they're basically taking the first loss on houses. So I personally, I, I really don't even spend too much time following it just because the cycles are so long and because it's one of those industries where the government plays a really big role. So if the government comes out and they, they want to promote home ownership, uh, they could really ruin the mortgage insurance industry if they wanted to, or they could make it you know, obscenely profitable by making it harder. I, it's just an industry that, truthfully, I don't understand too well, and I think you'd really have to have your finger of the, on the pulse of Washington politics to really understand it. Yeah, and not just Washington politics, but like you mentioned, like the housing cycle, um, it it's, tends to be very boom or bust, and the problem is that um, private mortgage insurers are not the ones writing the loans for the houses, so it's hard to, because in that case, it's two steps of underwriting, right? It's the bank's underwriting plus the insurer's underwriting that is creating this policy for this for this person. So like if the bank did a really bad job underwriting that house, um, then the insurer is definitely going to lose out. So it's, it's just something that it has a lot of variables and is hard to control. So just kind of think about that before you consider investing in private mortgage insurance. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And because these cycles are so long, someone could theoretically join an insurance company, a mortgage insurance company out of college, become an executive. And through that whole timeline, that they move up the company. Basically, they operate in, a, in an industry during a time when they experience almost no losses. So, you know, all they've been rewarded for is underwriting more and more and more and more insurance. And it's just psychologically, it's something that's really difficult to, you know, just grasp because 
eventually, you know, the losses do come due. It's just a matter of time. But someone could easily see, you know, 10, 20, 30 years of, you know, excess profits. And then all of a sudden, it's just complete wipeout in one year when house values go down. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay. So, do you have anything else you want to say about insurers before we wrap up? Um, they're boring, but they're boring. But because they're boring, they can make, make great investments. Personally, I actually like the insurance industry more than most, I guess, in the financial space. I like them more than banks, for instance. I think the risks are better, but you know, it's it's not everyone's cup of tea, and I get that too. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. Um, I think insurance companies are really interesting just because I think I don't know. I think that the the macro factors that are affecting insurance companies are a little bit more interesting than banks. So I think it's just like a, a more interesting thing to think about. Um, not that I don't love banks. Don't worry, Maxfield will be back, and we'll talk about banks again. I'm sure. <laughs> Um, okay, so as usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. You, if you still have any questions about insurance, feel free to email us, and we'll take it on to another show eventually. Contact us at industryfocusatfool.com or by tweeting us at MFIndustryFocus. Listeners, I have a Twitter account. It's a very... I post infrequently, I have to admit, but if you tweet me, I will eventually see it and respond to you. It's TMF Caffeine. Um, I, I don't really know how to pitch Twitter handles, so I hope that that is enough for you to find it. Um, and thank you to Austin Morgan, today's producer, patient, patient editor. Um, I, I screwed up a couple times, and Austin, you know, I know he's going to fix it. Thanks for making me sound good. And, Always. <laughs> oh. Um, and thanks to Jordan. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us, and I hope everyone has a great week. 